Welcome to the Cross Loganville's podcast channel. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series on Wisdom, a study through Proverbs. A few weeks ago, uh, myself, four other youth leaders, and 12 of our students went down to Lakeland, uh, where I've got a lot of ministry contacts, and there's a lot of awesome ministries going on down there. Uh, as we were prepping to go down there, uh, I let the students know we're going to be, as far as I'm concerned, what this missions trip is going to be is what we do on Wednesday nights, but together for 24 hours a day uh, for nine days straight, all right? And that is to create a culture of worship, belonging, and growth, right? Which means increase the web of connections between each other that revolves around God as worship, right? Belonging with each other in growth with ourselves, right? Growth happens on a mission trip because you get hungry sometimes, you get tired, and you must grow a little bit, right? Are you going to snap or something? So um, it was a fantastic time. I'm going to let them uh, share some specific stories, and then I'll follow up here in just a second. Hey guys, I'm Taylor, and one of the outreaches that we got to experience while in Lakeland was a place called Repurpose Art Studio. And pretty much it's run to, right now, get women off the streets and give them a sense of worth about themselves, kind of restore their confidence. Um, and we got to see that when we got to see them make things like blankets and jewelry and bags. And what they do with those is they sell them, and that money goes into housing for them to kind of just give them something that's theirs again. And so we got to talk to Brian and Connie, who own the place and run it. And they emphasize the idea that as Christians, we tend to put expectations on people. And what that does for us is helps us carry unnecessary burdens on other people's responsibilities that we're not responsible for ourselves. So where that takes my takeaway is that God allows your heart to be broken for things that break his heart. And there are two ways you can deal with that. Either one, you can deal with it without leaning on God, and that means you stay in that hurt and you don't do anything about it. Or the second way you can deal with it is with God, and you understand that he broke your heart for a reason so that you can take action and things come out of it like compassion. So that's something I learned on the trip. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dylan. I'm going to be sharing with y'all about the kids at the VBS camp in Lakeland. Before we got down there, I didn't expect much from the kids. Uh, sounds bad. I just didn't. Um, when we got down there, I was honestly blown away. I was just blown away by the way the kids acted and talked, just their behavior. Um, I just knew it wouldn't fly back here, like at home. Um, I was just tempted to get on to all the kids for the way they were acting, but on Monday night, I realized that none of the kids knew anything but the way they were acting. Um, like, the parents didn't control their behavior. They weren't getting disciplined. Um, and sadly, the kids weren't even getting raised by their parents. It was mainly their teenage siblings. When I realized that, I was heartbroken because never once did I think about their upbringing when they were acting the way they were acting. On Tuesday, I just talked to quite a few kids, and I just began to see the hunger inside of them for Jesus, and that, was, that made my heart happy. The rest of the, the, rest of the week, um, it, was, it was great. And on Thursday, before the kids went inside of their classrooms, I talked to a little boy named Caleb from my bus. Yeah, I believe he's a second grader or younger. And I asked him what he had learned, and he thought for a second, and he said to me, no matter what goes on at home, I know Jesus loves me. That, that it, was, it was a lot to hear from a little boy. And I thought, and I said, you're right, no matter what goes on in life, no matter what goes on at home, Jesus loves you. I know many of us in this room have gone through times of heartache, just sadness and depression, and we tend to forget the, the main thing, and that's that Jesus loves us all. So that was my takeaway. 
I go? Okay. Olo, I'm William. Um, so on the second night or second day, we went, uh, we did a, a, a home, homeless outreach. And uh, we bought um, like these huge pizzas and went out into downtown Lakeland and uh, just talked with these people and treated them like the most brilliant thing about them was that God created them and loved them. And I feel, and they feel like they've been treated subhuman, sub subhuman, which is the opposite of what we're supposed to do, I guess. Um, and then, and then, okay, later, um, when uh, it was time to pack up, we decided. Well, we had some pizzas left over, and um, we so we decided to go find some more people to give them to. So we went down to Lake Mirror, and we found this one man named Tim, and Tim had already been crying because um, this woman had given him McDonald's and uh, he, he still had tears in his eyes. And then when he saw us walking up to him, he just began crying more. And this, this uh, puzzled me. And it forced me to wonder why something as simple as a pizza would bring someone to tears. And the only reasonable uh, answer to that would be the motive behind what we were doing, which was to spread God's love. And, uh, and it, it, that thought really humbled me because it forced me to acknowledge how massive and infinite and unfathomable God's love is. And I'm extremely grateful for that. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Hey guys, I'm Lauren. Um, so I get to talk about more details about Tim. So when we met him, of course, he was in tears. Um, and so when it was time for us to leave to head back to the Dream Center where we, where we were staying, um, he asked what we were doing for the rest of the trip. Um, so we said that tomorrow, like the next day, we had a cookout for all the homeless people around that they can come and we can just have a dinner with them and get out of the rain. Um, with the rain, it wasn't planned, so we had the we had a makeshift. Um, so Tim came in later, and we already sat down and ate. Um, so I went and sat at the table with him. And after we read scripture, um, at like each table was able to speak about what they read and what they got from it. And so our table already spoke, and then it came back around to our table, and he ended up speaking. And no one expected him to speak, but when he spoke, it was the most amazing thing. Like, we were all blown away by the words that he came up with. Um, and in less than 24 hours, he asked God to save him and to get him out of his hole. Um, and then the next day, <laughs> um, the next day, he came back to the library where we did our reflection. And um, I was getting my coffee, and Ethan, another guy in a group, when we met him, said that, he walked into Crystals and asked if they were hiring, and he was able to fill out a job application. So less than 48 hours of being in his life and loving on him, he was able to have the opportunity to get his life right on track, like back on track, and get out of his hole that he's dug himself for so many years. Um, so my takeaway is consistency. Like if you have consistency, like you're always in the Word and you are developing a close relationship with the Lord. He can show you how fast and how well he can fix a problem that you're having in your life. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Very good. 
So I, uh, I told them the first night, uh, basically what would happen, we had a, a variety of different ministry outreaches we did, we had a variety of different lectures from local ministers on you know, their idea of calling and everything. And even on the first night, I remember before we left a place saying, I want you to pay attention to this thing that happens sometimes, because it's happening to me right now. I said, there'll be times where you work on something and you know it's consistent with what God would want and it's probably a pretty good thing to do. You see the need for it, it's important. But then the Lord does something with it that's so much better than you could possibly claim for yourself. Like the results are so much better. People are impacted so much more, uh, so much more growth and love from the Lord is shared than you expected that you don't, it doesn't even cross your mind to feel good about your contribution. Like, look what I did because you know that the Lord's the one that brought the return, right? And what that means is he was with you, and that is the greatest reward of life. It's what we're training for. And that's called grace, right? The, the action of God in your life. It's not just forgiveness. It's also the action of God to make things work out in a redemptive way. Um, so that's what you guys experienced. And so I've seen it in each of their lives. Uh, I've told some of them at different coffee meetings. I'm not even just proud of your development. I am more happy for you. Like, I'm thankful for you. I'm happy that you are moving deeper into the joy of the Lord as he forms you. And so I'm very, very thankful for this group, and I love you guys. And so thank you. Um, uh, my name is Rick. I'm the Next Gen Team Leader, and uh, we're continuing in uh, the book of Proverbs today. We'll be hitting five and six. Uh, I had to cut out the last thing on your notes because I'm just not going to have enough time to hit it. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is why loving wisdom is important. We're going to talk about uh, why adultery is actually bad, right? I mean, it's not just um, that it causes pain to people, uh, but we want to see the absolute ins and outs of Jesus' response to this, right? And how he loves people. He doesn't want to be hurt. And if people have been caught up in stuff, he absolutely wants to redeem them, right? His love is absolutely relentless. And then finally, a work ethic. We're going to be visiting in chapter 6 uh, and then talking about, as students of Jesus, uh, why is it that we would want to have a good work ethic, right? Not just it's assumed, but why would Jesus want us to have one uh, for the fullness of life that we're looking for? So uh, I'm excited about this series in Proverbs that's going to go for you know a few weeks here. One, because as the student pastor, I'm very happy that the students are on exactly the same reading track as the rest of the church. It matches Sunday mornings. And so parents, if you have students, this is not only maybe the easiest book of the Bible to discuss because it's just bite-sized little pieces of wisdom everywhere, uh, but um, we're matching. You're reading the same thing. And so this is going to present opportunities around the dinner table, while driving, all kinds of stuff. And so I'm excited about that. The other reason that I'm excited about this series is that Proverbs was the first book of the Bible that made me love the Bible. Uh, it's still uh, in my top three for sure. I don't even know what my favorite book is, but it was my first favorite. And uh, part of the reason is because uh, my first experience with it was an experience I've had in other parts of the Bible as well, but it looks like this. And I hope you'll recognize when this is happening to you as you engage the scriptures. There would be times when I would read certain Proverbs, and my immediate instinct was to say, that can't be true. And then, as I reflect on it, you're not supposed to do that about the Bible, I know, but I would do it, and, which needs to happen, by the way. You need to tell yourself, I don't know if I believe that, and then stay with it, and trust God to actually teach you truly experientially and deeply within you. And so there'd be times where I read a proverb, a proverb 
immediately I'd say, I don't see how that could be possible, but then it doesn't take long to say, not only is that so much more profoundly true than you realize, if you apply this to your life, it will improve it more than anything else in, in life will, right? And so that's also gonna happen when you read Jesus and in the New Testament, and he says stuff like, love your enemies, and immediately you say, never, that you can't be right. He must have not actually said that because that's an impossible or really unwise thing to do. And then you stay with it a little bit longer and you try it out a little bit with him as your teacher and you realize you obey so that you can understand. And then you understand he is absolutely the smartest person who's walked the face of the planet. He loves me more than I love myself. I can trust him for everything. And what else do you have to say, Jesus? Because I'd like to apply that too, all right? Um, so I'm gonna share a little bit of my story with this book uh, because it's talking about why I specifically love it, right? The, the impact it's made on me, and hopefully that'll encourage you to, to view what a valuable treasure the book of Proverbs is too. Uh, I grew up in uh, Lake Worth, Florida, West Palm Beach area, and so from the ages of zero to 18, and uh, I remember palm trees everywhere, super blue skies, it was a great way to live. Uh, I'd go, to, go surfing every day after school, and it was just a, it was a nice place. And uh, so Saturdays were pretty relaxed. My family came up with this routine, I think probably by accident, where you know we'd wake up, we'd have spam and eggs for breakfast, and uh, there we go, nutritional. And uh, then we'd have macaroni and cheese and hot dogs, also nutritional, and uh, do the chores and then go to the beach after. And this is what a Saturday looked like. And so uh, this was after the hot dogs and macaroni and cheese. And we're doing our chores, and my dad is washing the van. I'm mowing the lawn. And before this, it was just a super relaxed Saturday. We're goofing around. I'm like making jokes about Seinfeld with him or something. And it's just like, I'm relaxing. And uh, so he goes in, uh, washes the van. And as I'm about halfway done cutting the grass, he says, hey, come on over here. You know, shut that down. I want to talk to you about something. And so I could tell that the temperatures of seriousness, you know, had shifted quite a bit. And uh, I didn't know what was about to happen. And he says, I want you to promise me something. And I'm like, all right, you know. And he says, uh, don't worry, nothing bad's happening right now. But if I'm not around uh, to raise you and your sister and take care of the family, I want you to promise me you're going to do two things. One is that you need to go get a job and start paying some bills. And he says, and the second thing I want you to do is to read three chapters of the book of Proverbs a day, which is a weird little combination of advice in such a catastrophe, right? And so I'm like, sure, I promise. You know, let's go to the beach and uh, go back to my stuff and whatever. And then uh, a few days go by, and I'm working on homework a few nights later, notice the Bible on the corner of my desk, and the thought occurs to me, if he thinks it's that important, like he, he, he thinks reading this one book of the Bible is so important, it's very possible I could have some value from that, even though things are perfectly fine. And so I'm curious, I'm intrigued, his uh, trick worked, and uh, I begin to read uh, Proverbs 1 through 5, and as I do, I had this feeling, this, this weirdly human instinct to want to bury this treasure you just found, right? I don't know if you've run into something to where it's super valuable, but then you're like, you know, who's behind me who might also see this, right? That was my instinct, was just like, I want to like not let everybody else know the value of what I just found. I don't know what that says about me, but uh, it was as I'm reading it, 
I realize I have stumbled into a conversation between a king who has received divine wisdom from God, okay, and he's trying to transfer it to a person that he loves almost more than anyone in the world, his son, and that son, I mean, his son's become king after him. And so, I mean, it's like, this isn't just you're eavesdropping on someone getting dumped, you know, at the restaurant, and you're kind of leaning in like this, right? It's like, this is the most important, one of the most important conversations that ever happened. I can't believe I stumbled into this. And so, um, as I began to really, really appreciate it, uh, I realized that no one else is, is paying attention to this as a student, right? None of my peers are living this. And if I apply these truths, I can be really, really successful. And so um, I loved it because of that. And then later on in college, I realized that that same feeling I had of like discovering a treasure that nobody knows about is very, very similar to a story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. This is my favorite parable in the Bible. It's a short little story. But Jesus is describing the kingdom of God. A good definition of the kingdom of God is desiring God's desires, okay? It means where what God wants happens, and what the kingdom of God in our life looks like is when we more and more begin to think the way he thinks, believe the stuff he believes, and this is the best part. This is where the absolute freedom of our life is found. We can want what he wants, right? And so Jesus describes that, wanting what he wants, believing what he believes, treasuring God above all else as a situation like a guy who's wandering through a field, finding a treasure, burying it, hiding it, running home so he can sell everything he has to buy that field to get a hold of that treasure in his joy, right? And so that situation is one where he doesn't have enough to buy the treasure. Uh, he can only buy the field if he gets rid of absolutely everything else. But what this means is he receives an absolute bargain, which is what wisdom is. It's what reading the book of Proverbs is. And even more importantly, the opportunity to be a student of Jesus Christ, to learn to live in the kingdom of God as he has created us to do. This is the greatest opportunity. And so what it looks like to buy the field for our lives is simply to make all of ourselves available to learning to be able to desire the desires of God. It means seeing the calendar for the rest of my life, the clock, my energy, my background, my thoughts, my relationships, all of this can be a support in me progressively learning to desire the desires of God. And so today, when we're going to talk about adultery and work ethic, we're not just aiming to say we know it's immoral to commit adultery or to be lazy. What we're looking to do is not just become moral people. What we're looking to do is become fully alive people in Jesus. I think it's Ravi Zacharias that says, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And this is uh, what we're going to be looking to do here. So, uh, in Proverbs chapter 5, it is a very, very long pleading uh, from Solomon to his son to know the difference between a trap and an opportunity. That's a pretty good definition of wisdom right there. Warren Buffett, super wealthy investor, gave like $30 billion a few years ago to Bill Gates to spend for him. The reason he was able to make as much as he did is because he spent a lot of time uh, reading reports and learning what the difference is between a good investment and a bad investment, right? It's one of the most fundamental skills of wisdom. And Solomon is urging his son, uh, he's exposing this trap of the seducer. In this case, it's a woman. We all know dudes can be pretty crafty as well. 
But what he's doing is pleading, saying, this is what a trap looks like, right? It looks nice on the front end, but then he spends most of the chapter at the end saying, this is a consequence. The jealous husband might come and kill you. Your assets will be distributed. You will be humiliated, right? There's all of these different consequences that he gives. He's not being super moral about this. He's being utterly practical in saying, it's a trap, don't do it. You're gonna hurt other people, you're gonna hurt yourself. And the two specific pieces of advice uh, or commands that he gives him in this is he says two things that almost sound like they're the same thing, but I think they differ a little bit in a helpful way. He says, keep your, fa- uh, keep your way far from her, the seducer in this case, and do not go near her doorstep. So that second one, don't go near the doorstep, is totally practical. Keep some distance. Make it hard for her to get a hold of you. Unfriend her if you need to on social media. Delete that number, okay? Don't take a certain path to work. Watch out because physical presence can be dangerous. But the prerequisite to that, the deeper issue, is he's saying don't let your ways be like her ways, okay? And I think that refers to a deeper pattern of thought and values and beliefs and thinking about things the way that someone who is only chasing the feeling in front of them would think, okay? Uh, the way that he describes this really dangerous way of the seducer, or just a fool in general, as Proverbs will continue to describe, there's a few ways he describes the ways. One, the ways wander. He or she does not ponder the way of life. This is someone who is not reflecting. They're not thinking about consequences for them in the future, and they're not thinking about all of the other people they're going to hurt. It's basically unreflective. They don't ponder the path of life, meaning they don't ask what would actually lead to a fulfilling life. And this is, this is the scariest part for me. The seducer or the fool doesn't even know it. I mean, they don't know that they don't know that they're getting themselves into trouble. This is a basic way of ruining life in every way. It doesn't just have to be adultery. Not paying attention to our own ways, not thinking about the future, is how all types of sin get out of control. And so he's warning Be careful. This looks like an opportunity. Your body may be telling you, son, this is an opportunity. I'm telling you this is a trap, right? So watch out. Uh, So like I said, what we're looking to do is not just make the point that adultery is bad. In a conservative church, you should expect that's going to be said. Uh, What we're looking to do is really look at the way Jesus would look at this deeper than that. So it's not enough to agree that something is a sin. It's not a enough to avoid that sin. In this specific one, Jesus tells in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that it's actually lust is the heart of adultery, is adultery in the heart, so it's not even enough to avoid that. That might make you a moral person, but again, we're not just looking to be moral, we're not just aiming to not be sinful, what we're aiming to do is view every human being we come into contact with as a treasure of God, right? Whether there are something, someone we would be tempted to lust after, if you're thinking about them as a treasure of God, and you treasure that God, you're not going to need to worry about the lust, right? And if someone has got into a situation where they've really messed up their family, um, or they've suffered themselves, we want to think about this in the same way that Jesus would, where we want their redemption, even though there's all kinds of other emotions involved, all right? So, uh, I read a book once about a guy who was raised in a smaller town than Loganville, and uh, he went off to college, didn't know what he was getting himself into, 
Uh, it was kind of a rude awakening culturally. He finishes his degree. He's studying to be a pastor. He goes back home. He starts working on the farm. And you could tell, he could tell that his boss, the farmer, wasn't really, uh, you know, feeling really comfortable with a kid who went to college. He wanted to poke at him a little bit, give him a hard time. And so finally, he asks him a question he wasn't expecting. And uh, he asked this guy, Tex Sample is the name, and he says, what did they teach you about sex at that fancy seminary you went to? And because uh, seminaries are off multiple times, for sure. It's not a good guarantee of anything. And he says, so Tex is thinking about it, and he says, well, you know, you need to think about what a sexual relationship does to people. You need to think about, I mean, if there's a God that we're accountable to, like how that factors in. And the farmer got tired of all of the, the thinking, and he interrupts and says, I have a rule, just don't fool around. But he, I cleaned up the language a little bit here, okay? Uh, and basically what he was saying is, what's so hard about this? Just don't do it. Or why would you complicate things? The dangerous thing about this, however, is that Jesus goes way farther than that. We've already talked about how Jesus goes farther than just don't do it. And then secondly, that type of thinking, just don't do it, is depending on willpower alone, which is like a little bit naive, okay? And then uh, the scripture tells us we don't just struggle against flesh and blood, right? Take heed lest you fall. This guy's way of thinking, this surface level thing, is dangerously close to the way the seducer in the scripture thinks. She is not reflective. In this case, maybe the guy's never gonna have a problem, that would be fine, but the way he's thinking is just as dangerously simplistic as, uh, as the person who actually does find themselves in trouble. And so there's a lot of reasons he may have wanted to be so quickly dismissive. Um, I think this is uh, important to pay attention to. Oftentimes, we assume that the person who oversimplifies is tougher or maybe even smarter than someone who thinks deeply. Jesus was not that way, though, right? I mean, he goes deeper than absolutely everybody. He can work harder, okay? He can work longer. He is not afraid of going in deep places. The thing that I think is possibly more likely is that this guy may have just been too tired to think deeply about stuff. That's the culture we live in, right? I mean, we, there's a lot of uh, anxiety. There's a lot of responsibilities. A lot of people feel like we don't have enough time or energy to get things done. How could I possibly think deeply with, about stuff? But Jesus makes this invitation. He says, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest right? He's calling us into a relationship where he's going to be carried most of the weight. And then secondly, we're not coming up with original thoughts here. We're going deep into the, the thought framework that Jesus has already created for us. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're just joining him in the depths of human experience that he has explored and is mapping out for us so that we can have the abundant life. And so in order to get a fuller glimpse of like how Jesus is thinking about this issue that can really be tragic and, and hurtful for a lot of people. Uh, if you'll turn uh, or look at the scripture in uh, John chapter 7, 53 through uh, chapter 8, verse 11, there's a story that a lot of us will recognize, and that is uh, the Pharisees have laid a trap for Jesus over and over again. They've been trying to do this, and the story is they have taken a lady who's been caught in adultery. They drag her in front of Jesus, they've all got rocks in their hands. This is a pretty tense situation, imagine it. They, they got rocks in their hands, they're ready to throw rocks until this person is dead. 
And so they say to Jesus, the law says she was caught in the act and we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? Now, remember, we have to remember Jesus is tougher than anyone you've ever met, okay? We also need to remember that he's smarter than anybody we've ever met. And in this case, he recognizes the trap and turns it into an opportunity, not just for this lady to have her life saved because he saves her physical life. He sees it as an opportunity to liberate her from a way of life that she used to think think was the best thing available for her. And he's going to show her that there is something much better than the pattern she's found herself in. And he's also going to liberate these guys who are chasing the same types of feelings that she was, right? Sex and violence go together because they're just really exciting and whatever, and that's part of what's going on. They've got this self-righteousness that, like, is one of the funnest things in the world. If you've ever watched reality TV, and then you can, like, look at how stupid other people are and then feel good about yourself, I've done it. Uh, it's, it's quite a little high there, too. He's going to liberate them from the logs in their own eyes, okay? So in this case, uh, they've got this, I mean, like, buzzing crowd. They've got rocks. And then he does something that surprises everyone. I giggle when I read it sometimes. He bends down and starts writing in the dirt. And why he would do that, I'm not really sure. It could be that he's just distracting in order to de-escalate the situation for a second, maybe cause a moment of reflection. But he does this, and then, if you'll recall, he says, you know, they ask, what are we supposed to do? And he says, he who has not sinned cast the first stone. And the scripture includes an interesting detail. One, the older guys drop the rocks first. And this is, there's probably a lot of reasons for this. One, you know, if you live longer, there's more opportunities to sin, right? So they're like, oh yeah, I remember that one. Uh, But there could also be the fact that they've learned to reflect on their lives a little bit better than the younger people have. And then again, I think that, uh, so they have better memories, they're better at reflecting. And then third, I think that maybe they're not as hooked on some big spectacular event about to happening, right? They don't need an emotional thrill. They can, they can take some, some word and begin to really reflect over it. And so as uh, they begin to walk away, Jesus says, where are your accusers? They're gone, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, all right? So this is tough, right? Um, People who read this verse oftentimes would be concerned that Jesus is being soft on a sin that really hurts a lot of people, right? Um, And let's be clear, we're not saying we really think she should have been stoned or something, but if you've been in a situation um, where someone has been hurt emotionally, it can even just be a breakup. It doesn't have to be sinful. When people are emotionally hurt that you love, there is some frustration, and you want there to be some sharing of suffering from the person who caused it. And so some of us will get nervous saying, well, is Jesus being soft on sin here? And the answer is, or is he minimizing it or dismissing it? Jesus, we have to believe, knows the cost of sin more than any person who's ever walked the face of the planet because he paid for our sins with his life. He knows the cost of sin more than anybody else. So I can promise you, he is not saying, no problem. These guys are a bunch of prudes or something. He knows the cost of sin. But then secondly, um, I tell the students, he did not just come to die for our sins and erase uh, our debt, but Jesus, another thing he did was out-suffer anybody who has lived. And so we're not dismissing the pain of the people who have been hurt 
as collateral damage. Jesus takes human pain more seriously than anybody else. And one of the things that he did was outsuffer us. So he's not minimizing sin. He's not saying, well, times are changing. He's saying, don't do this anymore, right? Don't, I don't condemn you. I want a better life from you, for you. Go and sin no more. And oftentimes when we read that verse, go and sin no more, has anybody ever felt like this intense pressure after you read that? And you're like, ah, oh, geez. I mean, he forgave me once. Now he's just going to like annihilate me the next time I do something wrong, right? There might be this fear of him saying, I forgave, how many times do I have to forgive you? And he just gets tired of it. I don't think that that's how she read it or how she interpreted him saying that. Eugene Peterson was the one that pointed out to me that when she heard that, it could have been very close to the gospel for her. Go and sin no more is really, really great news if you think that is a possible thing. Now, I'm not talking about like you're never gonna, you know, slip up, do anything bad at all. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you don't have to remain in this pattern of enslavement to sin the way that you have. You didn't know there was a better option. You were doing what you thought would be most satisfying. Some of the good news is God is more enjoyable than all he has made. Some of the good news is that your identity and your power is not proven by how many people you can seduce or getting attention from different people. Part of the good news is Jesus loves you more than you love yourself, more than your parents love you. You don't gotta prove anything. He, he loves you, that's part of the good news. Uh, I was at a revival years ago when I was about 12, a little bit earlier than that. Um, there's a revival that went on for years in the panhandle of Florida. A lot of people got saved. Uh, some stuff got wacky, but a lot of it was pretty good. And uh, this one time, there was a lot of radical salvations, people who just left stuff behind entirely, full-on went after the Lord. And this one lady uh, who was leaving uh, a life of all sorts of recklessness and getting herself into trouble and all kinds of addictions and stuff, right before she gets dunked in the tank, she throws up her hands and yells, this is better than sex. And of course, the church people laughed and were uncomfortable. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, but, but that is part of the gospel. Part of the good news of God's good world that we live in is that he is more enjoyable than all he has made. And if he's directing us away from different things, it's because... He really does know how human beings can be satisfied and flourish, and he knows that he's the one where we really find it. Um, so C.S. Lewis says that the creator does not find our desires too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child, we want to stay making mud pies in slums because we can't imagine a day making sandcastles at the beach, right? We have to believe this. God is really more enjoyable than all he has made. He's really smart. He's got a better identity, purpose, and destiny for us, and it is through following him, becoming a student of Jesus, which eventually makes our character go in a similar direction to his, that we can desire the desires of God, love people the way that he loves them, and then eventually be filled to all the fullness of God. One of the big uh, pieces of uh, good news about lust, adultery, all sexual ethics, is that there is a heck of a lot more joy in God's love for other people than there is human lust, right? One is diminishing returns, something else is eternal compounding building of appreciating how much God loves other people, right? Um, so, 
that's one nice heavy topic. Then we'll move on to work, all right? Uh, in Proverbs chapter 6, uh, it tells uh, his, his son uh, to pay attention to the ant, right? I mean, the ant is this little bug who doesn't have a boss micromanaging it. It learns what to do. It does what it needs to do. And if we need to, we can take a model from this little bug who gets things done. But like I said, we're not just looking to be good, moral, trustworthy people. We're looking to be fully alive. And that means treating this major part of our life, which is work, uh, looking at work the way that Jesus would and see uh, whatever aims he has, what it's supposed to do uh, for us. And so uh, I found that being a parent has made me more reflective. I have to think about what I'm doing and saying a little bit more often than before Ricky kind of woke up. I mean, like before they're two, you can still do whatever you want. But uh, he's asking questions these days. And so <laughs> a few months ago, I'm heading off to work, and he says, um, you know, Daddy, you want to play cars? And I said, I do want to play cars, and I will play cars after I get home, but uh, I got to go to work. And he says, why do you have to go to work? And I automatically, I regret saying this, it just kind of slipped out, but I go, well, you know, mommy likes to live in a house, and you like to have food and toys. Money is how those things happen. I need to go make money. And immediately I think, this isn't even like a faith issue. Like, you don't have to be a Christian to hope your kid has a higher view of work than just a paycheck, right? Because they can learn money comes from stealing, too. And so you don't, you want to elevate work just a little bit. And so what I've been saying since then is I like to help people. That's a little bit better. But what I'm going to begin to be saying is that work is the place where I learn how uh, to love people the way Jesus loves people, right? A major part of what work is supposed to be is how you are formed while you're doing the work. So John Maxwell says that the greatest reward for your work is not what you get from it, but what you become by it. And that is God's project for your life on this planet. Uh, the main thing that he gets out of our life is the person we become, for us to really become worshipers in spirit and in truth. And so, uh, let Ricky know that. And uh, a lot of you guys don't know this because we just have a wonderful church. I mean, like, I, I love this place, and I haven't, my mind hasn't gone here, I mean, for years now since I've been here. But all throughout my schooling, uh, studying to be a pastor, uh, when I was in Lakeland, I had a lot of cynicism about the church uh, in America because mission drift is always possible. It's always possible to start out doing something good and losing your way. The mandate Jesus made for us is to make disciples. And oftentimes, it's very easy to get distracted and, and take up some other cause, which is important, right? But it's, it's not this. And so I remember oftentimes thinking, I just don't know if I would be more effective making disciples in another way besides the church. So I don't have to do a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with that, right? And there's a lot of cynicism and all that, but, which I've got over quite a bit. But uh, there was uh, one time, even in the depths of being really cynical, that I told my dad, even though I don't know of a lot of bright spots where a church is just absolutely making disciples, and even though I can't think of many people that I would say, I want you to mentor me and teach me how to make disciples, I said the reason that I think the job of a pastor is, is valuable and uh, it just, just because it is so unique, there's this, there's this uniqueness about it, and that is, it's the one job I can think of where it sticks out as odd. I mean, it just looks strange if a pastor brags about what's going on, 
at the place, right? I mean, like, it's an actual vain thing. So going to a ministry conference and saying to other guys, how many do you have at your church, right? And then you kind of one-up each other. Like, that sticks out as odd to me, okay? And it's the only job I can think of where it actually sticks out as odd to boast because I'm not trying to frame boasting as this incredible, terrible sin, but it is a distraction for the joy of the Lord, okay? And in every other job that I can think of, no one would even think twice if you said, I mean, I sold like five times as many as the other guy or something. It just, they would say, oh, cool, right? They may get off-put eventually if it's really obnoxious, but it won't stick out as inconsistent with what the job is. Let's just say that, right? And so what I mean by this is uh, I knew of a guy uh, years ago who wanted to build a megachurch. So he wanted to have, you know, thousands and thousands and big buildings and all that. And so he tries, fails, is embarrassed. And then after that, he reaches out to all of, you know, the big church pastors within an hour of himself. And he just emails a whole bunch and says, um, if you'll have lunch with me and just tell me everything you can about how to achieve this, you know, group of people, I will buy you lunch. I'll give you a few hundred bucks, right? So he did this over and over and over again. And then within five years, he had built a megachurch. Like he had accomplished the goal. He had learned the right buttons to push. He learned the right levers. Uh, there's research that says if pink envelopes are used uh, for offering, then uh, giving goes up some percentage. I mean, there's a bunch of technical things that can just be figured out whether or not God has any part of it at all, right? And so in this case, and I don't think the guy was like this. I mean, and by the way, the Lord can absolutely use situations like this, right? But he could brag. I mean, he could say, I figured it out better than my competitors did. I mean, I, I did the things better, which is what you could say in any job. But of course, if, you know, God doesn't have to be a part of that, I have zero interest in that, right? The other option, and this is what I want us to think about, not just for pastoral ministry, I want us to think about this for every job that exists in the world, okay? The way I think that reflects way more what God has intended us to do uh, is to attend to his presence and desires in a place. He loves the customers you serve. He loves the students you serve. He knows how to do the job better than you. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask him for it and he'll give it to you, right? And in that case, it wouldn't make any sense to brag at all because you're fully aware the return was brought to by God. And that's not like a sentimental, humble brag. It's like, no, seriously, I know that God is the one that gave the return. And like I said earlier about the students with the missions trip, that causes joy, right? When you're so thankful for how things turned out, not just because the outcome was good, but because you know God was with you when you were selling that thing or transferring that message or fixing that thing, the withness of God with you and how that affects you as a person is the best reward. Um, we've been taught by the culture oftentimes. This is, this is normally the default idea about work. Uh, we, uh, we normally, if work is the, if we, if we trust our work or our reputation or whatever more than Jesus, like if that's the thing that we trust, then what that means is our lives are revolving around something else, okay, other than Jesus himself, who we trust to raise us from the dead eventually. We're trusting him for some big stuff. If our life revolves around work instead of him, these are to two totally different senses of who I am, what I'm supposed to be doing, and where I'm going, right? And so Henry Nouwen wrote long ago that the three false identities 
the three things that we often are told by culture that you are that you're really not, but like culture tells you you are, is that I am what I produce in work, I am what I possess when I, you know, get stuff from work, or my reputation. And if we believe that is the most, now every one of those are important, no doubt. We have a responsibility to steward all three of those for sure, but if we make them supreme, then we're letting something else be the Lord of our lives and not Jesus, right? And Henry says, it's not what you possess, what you produce, and what others say about you. The most important thing about you is that Jesus loves you. It sounds so simple. It doesn't sound like it can be that important, but it's absolutely the most fundamental lever of your life. If you see yourself primarily with ever-deepening depths, that you're the beloved of Jesus, you're going to be able to do all sorts of things, and you're going to be able to experience life in a way you cannot possibly imagine. Then secondly, a purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever is a way more empowering purpose than loving the job I do, right? Or the effect that may or may not come. And then finally, destiny. What is the destiny of having a really, being a great worker um, to be appreciated? That's often what we're looking for, uh, to be appreciated, even if it's just the people we provided for. But oftentimes, if, if something revolves around uh, work instead of Jesus, destiny is eventually whatever it is, I'm looking to be affirmed by people when the good news is you are already more valuable than you could be if all you did was provide something great. Jesus' love for you is a zillion times more impactful and more empowering than other people's validation of your efforts who we know uh, it doesn't come sometimes, right? Sometimes people just don't appreciate it. Uh, the destiny instead that Jesus has for you uh, is to be filled to all the fullness of God, which is better than any other experience on the human and changes everything about the way we interact with the world. And then this is one of my favorite sayings I've ever heard from Dallas Willard. He, he doesn't use the word destiny for this, but he says, God's project for you is to turn you into the kind of person to where he could say yes to anything you ask for. Why would that be? Because our hearts are so similar in direction to his to where he knows it's not dangerous to give you what you want because you want good things in the same way, right? Because we have been filled to all the fullness of God. So, um, yeah, having wisdom, having the desires of God, the greatest opportunity. I'm going to leave you with this reflection question on this. Uh, I would revisit this a few times over the next few weeks, honestly, because this is, this is one that will mess with your head a little bit, I think. Uh, would you rather have a billion dollars? Seriously. And you could lower it if that's too extreme. Would you rather have a million dollars? Whatever. Would you rather have a million, a billion, whatever you can handle? Or would you rather be capable of desiring the desires of God in every situation for the rest of your life? It's going to tell you a little bit about how much you trust God's judgment, how much you trust his ability to take care of you. I want there to be no guilt in that reflection. Just ask yourself, why am I giving the answer that I'm thinking? Would I rather have a million or a billion dollars, or would I rather have the character that allows me to desire whatever God desires of me uh, in every moment of the rest of my life? Thank you so much for watching the message today. We hope that this message inspired you and challenged you as you watched it. I encourage you to check out our website. It's thecrossloganville.org. There's a lot of information about our church there uh, that maybe can help you answer some questions about who we are. And don't forget that on our website, we have old messages and archived series. So you can spend a lot of time there learning and exploring. If you have any questions, you can contact us via the web 
or you could call us at the church at 770-554-3322. Thanks again for watching.